0: your three favorite female artists. Can you even name three female artists? A recent British poll for International Women's Day asked people to name three female artists, and most could not. Why not? Art historian Linda Nochlin asked a similar question in 1971 in her essay called Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? Unboxing the Canon takes a closer look at the history of Western art. We might be seduced by the pretty packaging such as soft brushstrokes, brilliant colors, grand gestures, expert carving, even traditional iconography. But what happens when we take a deeper look, when we open the packaging and see what might have been invisible or what is a cultural blind spot? Join me, Professor Linda Steer, and co-host Madeline Collins for a take on art history that connects the past to the present, critiques the canon, and reveals what might not be immediately apparent in Western art and its institutions. So, how does Nochlin answer her question, why have there been no great women artists? Well, it's a long and complicated answer, but the gist of it is this. If we want great women artists, we need to change our institutions, for institutions create ideas about what is natural about women, including who they are and what they're capable of. And we need to critique the notion, the myth, as Nochlin calls it, of genius altogether. Instead, Nochlin writes, we should ask, quote, from what social classes artists were most likely to come at different periods of art history, from what castes and subgroups, end quote. She reminds us that most artists, quote, came from families in which their fathers or other close relatives were painters and sculptors or engaged in related professions, end quote. Access to training and education was a major factor, for example. Nochlin writes about the exclusion of women from European Academies of Art Instruction. How can one become a great artist if excluded from the very institutions that teach art practice? Now, 50 years later, we need to think about Nochlin's question about the absence of women artists from the status of genius in different ways. We might consider other questions such as, how have women been excluded from the art world and how have they challenged that? Or, how have the material conditions of women's lives affected the art they make? Importantly, we need to take an intersectional feminist approach to these questions to be sure that we get a full picture of the artists we talk about and the structural inequalities or experiences that might affect their work. We could easily ask, Where are all the great women artists of color in art history? Or, where are all the queer artists who identify as female? We've explored some of these questions in previous episodes, but by no means is our work finished. One of the themes contemporary marginalized artists have explored is invisibility. And luckily for us, my co-host Madeline, who is a fourth year undergraduate student, is exploring some of these ideas in her thesis. So I thought it would be fun to ask her some questions about that research. Not all the artists she is thinking about are women, but we've decided that women will be the focus of this episode. You can't have too much intersectional feminism in a podcast about critiquing the canon of Western art, can you? So Madeline, can you tell us why
1: you became interested in the topic of invisibility in contemporary art? I think the big thing for me is that I'm really interested in the meaning-making process that comes with viewing and understanding art. One of the questions that we always have to address in art history classes is the politics of looking, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Art will always be subject to the gaze, at least from the artist. Then if there's a viewer, their gaze comes into account. Plus, if there are any figures in the painting, their gaze matters as well. I've come to really appreciate that there's really no neutrality in art and that these gazes are really charged with social, political, or cultural contexts that are integral to understanding the minutia of the image. This extends beyond art into any sort of visual culture or even any cultural product. The choices of the content and our reaction to them all mean something. The politics of looking ensure that we ask who's being seen in the work and who's doing the seeing. Most importantly. We need to ask who's not seeing or being seen. In this sense, marginalized groups, any community of individuals who are relegated to the margins of society, are highly invisible. So what does this invisibility mean? How does it look and feel? And what can we do about it? That's
0: really interesting. And I agree the politics of looking is central to any analysis of visual culture, including art. I know you've been working on several artists, and we've only chosen five to talk about today, but maybe you could tell us a bit about Kara Walker's work. I talked about her work Fons Americanus* in an earlier episode on appropriation. So how has Walker explored the theme of invisibility
1: in the work that you're looking at? In her tableau works, Walker cuts silhouettes of figures and objects out of black paper and usually affixes them to gallery walls, leaving behind a scene almost completely obscured. On one hand, the body is literally absent because we can't see anything but a shadow, with all facial features, expressions, and other characteristics completely unviewable. On the other hand, the relationships, the power dynamics, and most importantly, the violence between people is foregrounded and highly visible. In an audio description for one of her exhibitions, she said, quote, I started cutting black paper and making these silhouettes. It's like the handprint. It's very basic information, very honest, but at the same time it's not honest at all. I mean, it's a complete obliteration of the details of a scene and relying on a generalization to get the point of an image across. I really like that association. There's a similarity between the silhouette and other types of stereotyping, racial stereotyping in particular, end quote. That is compelling. What does Walker depict in these silhouettes? The tableau works depict horrific scenes from the antebellum South, when racial slavery was still in place and Black people were subjugated in many violent forms. Shocking and sometimes confusing representations of murder, lynching, torture, and all kinds of sexual violence are recreated in a campy, cartoony style that seems incongruous with the seriousness of the content.
0: The work is provocative, but difficult to look at, especially when the form is lighthearted. And the content is so heavy and disturbing. If we return to the idea of a politics of looking, where viewers have a role to play, how have audiences responded to this work?
1: Well, on one hand, Black people have been markedly absent from the canon of Western art, so they were never there to see. When they were, they were subjects of the sexualizing or the dehumanizing gaze. Rarely would they ever be allowed to look. They were looked at. So when we have Walker creating works that don't necessarily look back with their eyes, but which are certainly a direct confrontation with the viewer, she forces us to look on the horrors of anti-blackness, but also makes us reckon with how we think about race, how we look at it, what we've become desensitized to, and what we neglect to think about. Her work is controversial. Many critics think her work is disgusting, racist, offensive, too jokey, or hard to look at. And some of that is true. But I think that's the point. We're supposed to be uncomfortable. And as
0: we've seen in other episodes of the podcast, uncomfortable art upsets our expectations about what art is supposed to be. If we're thinking about intersectional feminism, how have some of these artists' identities informed their work? Take Teresa Margoles, for example. How has her position as a Mexican woman informed her work in terms of visibility or invisibility?
1: That's a great question, because we can't really talk about invisibility without talking about intersectionality. Certain individuals can belong to more than one invisible group, and that means their marginalization exists in so many different sectors of life, if not all of them. Teresa Margoyas makes pretty contentious work surrounding the extraordinarily high homicide rates in Mexico, particularly in border towns that have to deal with increased narco-trafficking, violence from border patrol, and gang violence. Bodies are sometimes left anonymously in the streets, whole identities lost to violence. One thing Margoyles often focuses on is femicide. Many thousands of women have been murdered in the city of Juarez since 1993, and often in horrific circumstances. This femicide, while sometimes acknowledged by local or even international governments, remains largely ignored. But invisibility isn't just produced by ignoring the issue. It also comes from the creation of marginalizing narratives that diminish and devalue the personhood of these individuals. Often, the media victim blames these women for being in the sex trade or being out at night, and authorities have not launched proper thorough investigations into the matter, brushing it off to the side. Race, gender, and class all come into play within this topic.
0: The rates of violence against women in Juarez during this time frame is well known and has been the subject of novels, investigative journalism, even TV shows, and it's an ongoing problem. Despite new efforts to investigate and prosecute these murders, the femicide rate was higher than ever in 2021. So why then is Margolis' work so controversial?
1: So as a former forensic assistant, Margolis does a lot of work directly with corpses, which is why her work is so sensitive. Her most well known works are her installations, in which viewers enter empty rooms filled with humid air, bubbles, mist, fog, etc. What audiences don't know until they read the text on the wall is that the substances were produced with water that had been used to wash the bodies of murder victims at the morgue. Can you imagine the shock? The bodies of these victims are absent, and the water only touched the bodies, but their presence is still felt all the same as we come into close physical proximity or contact with these residues. In this way, not only does Margoyas make it impossible to avoid coming figuratively face-to-face with the victims we ignore every day, the people are able to live on in a sort of way, to be identified and addressed in ways that their often anonymous deaths did not allow them to be. Her other works are no less visceral. For instance, Sonidos de la Muerte, or Sounds of Death, is a 2008 sound installation set up in a narrow hallway. Gray speakers line the floor like tombstones, each emitting a soundscape that overlaps with the others to create an eerie and overwhelming sound. Each soundscape is a field recording from the exact location a woman was murdered. There is nothing to see, only to hear, and knowing the location of the soundscapes evokes the scene and circumstances of the crime in the mind's eye. Margoles' work definitely is a study in empathy and a reminder that murder victims once lived and breathed and that their pain should not be invisible.
0: Margolis uses absence to evoke empathy and to think about femicide and class in Mexico. Let's talk a bit about another artist that may be more familiar to listeners. In the 1970s, Cuban-American artist Ana Mendieta made these moving, provocative, earth-body sculptures called silhouettas or silhouettes. I think she made more than 200 of these. The photographs of the sculptures depict the trace of the artist's body in the landscape. Madeline, what is the significance of the
1: absent body in Mendieta's work? The different thing about the absent body in Mendieta's work is that it's distinctly her own. She's known for her silhouette series that ran from 1973 to 1980 in which she used her own body's measurements to carve out the shape of a human body in the ground in various locations across the United States, Mexico, and Cuba. Mendieta's work stems from the exile and alienation she experienced when she and her sister, along with thousands of other miners, were sent alone to America from Cuba following the Cuban Revolution. In the US, she experienced racism and xenophobia and never felt as though she was home. She was deeply affected by her homesickness. This led her to begin making a space for herself, literally, in the earth of the U.S., to try to find some semblance of home or belonging. The untitled silhouettes are only available to view in photographs, although a select few images and films of her behind-the-scenes process do exist. Otherwise, her silhouettes have long been lost to the elements. She would dig the shape out of the earth, but also paint it onto caves, imprint it into dust, logs, or grass, mold it out of plants or ice, or create an outline using mud or even fire. She would also fill it with things like blood or flowers. After her very first silhouette, one where she lay down in the grave naked and covered her body with flowers, she said, quote, I felt like I was covered by time and history. End quote. But despite the fact that the body does mirror her own, we are still able to identify with the grave she carves. Her, quote, personal biography encompasses the existential dilemmas of the modern era, the experience of personal, cultural, and political displacement, the loss of connection and continuity with one's individual and collective past, and the pressure to conform and assimilate in a foreign environment, language, and value system, end quote. The absent body then becomes a method of not only reinventing herself and giving her a home, but also communicating these big ideas that deeply affect marginalized communities.
0: This makes me think of Kara
1: Walker's silhouettes. Are there any connections between these two bodies of work? Definitely. Both artists remove the body, but not really. They take away the defining facial features and characteristics, and leave only an outline of the person behind, but their respective contexts imbue the leftovers with such meaning, meaning that is not only deeply personal, but also addresses major social and cultural imbalances in society. At first glance, they can seem innocuous, but their truths slowly get revealed the more you look. And for me, I find both very haunting, like the figures are really in the space with you.
0: Haunting is the perfect word to describe these works of art. Mari Katayama is another artist you've been thinking about. Can you tell us a bit about how she addresses the intersections of race, able-bodiedness, and gender in her
1: work? For sure. Her work is a great example of the importance of intersectionality. We talked about disabled bodies in art a few episodes ago, and about how people with disabilities aren't often allowed to be in control of their representation. Katayama is one of the contemporary artists changing this fact, and her photographic self-portraits are so expressive. She often photographs herself in almost model, magazine, editorial ways, but keeps her amputated legs and her cleft hand in full view, turning herself into, quote, a living sculpture. She was born with tibial hemimelia, which affected the development of her legs and one hand, and at a very young age, she made the decision to have both legs amputated. She has several series of works that include her making interesting prosthetics for herself, such as her High Heels Project, while others see her sewing and stuffing fake limbs and dolls to surround herself with. In my thesis, I talk about a particular work of hers called Your Mind from 2014, which consists of both a large photograph and a stuffed doll. The photograph shows Katayama sitting in a clean white bed in white underclothes, not wearing her prosthetic legs or hiding her hand. She's definitely evoking the Western trope of the Odalisque, which we've also talked about in previous episodes a semi-reclined nude woman often of eastern descent, usually made specifically to provoke and excite the western gaze. And for a woman of Japanese descent, such as Katayama, this objectifying and sexualizing gaze is always present. This is then intensified by the dehumanizing gaze we often level towards people with disabilities. The sculpture beneath it is a recreation of the photograph, but instead with a life-size patchwork doll on a bed. The face of the doll is replaced with a circular mirror and lined with light bulbs, almost like a vanity mirror in a dressing room. The viewer standing over the sculpture can then be projected onto the body through their reflection in the mirror. Since the doll is a stand-in for Katayama's body, including her disabilities, the viewer is given a sort of -of out-of-body moment where they have now become this deeply marginalized body and also have to be stared at with the same gaze they were just directing towards Katayama. The patchwork design of the doll alludes to her body's fragmentation as an amputee, but also keeps visible her own power in constructing herself, her complete control over her body and self-representation. The artist is present in so many ways, even if there's only a doll in our own reflection directly in front of us.
0: This oscillation between presence and absence is an important factor in these works that reveals some of the complexities or intersections between categories of difference or marginalization. I really like the ways that some of the works of art address the legacies of the canon of Western art, all the while interrogating both personal and group experiences of invisibility and marginalization. Katayama's work, for example, makes me think about the implications of being both subject to and absent from the institutional gaze of Western art. I could say a lot more about this, but unfortunately, we are out of time. And this is our last episode of the season. That makes it even more difficult to say goodbye. Madeline, thanks so much for your wonderful contribution to unboxing the canon over the past
1: year. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really amazing to experience. Can't wait to see what the future holds. And thank you to all of you out there for listening and learning along with us. Bye for now. Season two of Unboxing the Canon is hosted and produced by Professor Linda Steer. Our sound designer and contributing researcher is Madeline Collins, who is also reading these credits. If you like Unboxing the Canon, please subscribe and rate us on any of the main podcast apps. Because this podcast is an OER, it is free to download and use in your own teaching and learning. If you do use it in your class, we would love to know. You can find us on Twitter at Canon Unboxing or Instagram at Unboxing the Canon. You can also write to unboxingthecanon at gmail.com. Financial support for this podcast comes from the Humanities Research Institute and Match of Minds, both at Brock University. Brock University is located on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples, many of whom continue to live and work here today. We encourage you to learn about the history of the Indigenous people and the treaties and agreements that govern the territory where you live. Our region is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties and is within the land protected by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Agreement. We acknowledge that our great standard of living is directly related to the resources and friendship of First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples.